Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Now a warning that the court records in this case include gruesome details of murder, so please listen at your own discretion. This episode also contains a lot of names and dates, but bear with me. It leads to a fascinating account of a serial killer no one suspected. Little Bruce MacArthur was born in October 1951 and grew up with a sister in a bungalow near Woodville, Ontario, where his parents farmed and took in foster kids. He attended a one-room schoolhouse, then in high school took the bus to nearby Finland Falls. There he met Janice Campbell. Her yearbook photo portrays a pretty young woman with sleek long hair and an ambition to become a nurse. Bruce's photo depicts a young man with dark hair and a pointed chin, wearing a buttoned-up white shirt and a tie, and his ambition was to be successful. After high school, Bruce and Janice married. By 1986, they had a boy and a girl and lived in Oshawa, less than an hour's drive from Toronto. Over the years, Bruce held numerous jobs including working at department stores. When he was 35, the couple bought their first home. Soon after 1999, big changes happened in Bruce's life. He declared bankruptcy and left his wife and family and moved to Toronto. There, he slowly came out of the closet. In October 2001, Bruce, who was now 50, hooked up with a man. The Star reported that at the man's apartment, Bruce attacked him with a metal pipe. The man managed to escape and called 911 and was taken to the hospital and survived. Bruce turned himself into police, and while he admitted he may have hurt someone, he claimed he didn't know why. Bruce was charged with assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm and a year and a half later, pled guilty. A psychological assessment presented at his sentencing indicated that he was a low risk to reoffend, and he received a conditional sentence. Bruce started up a gardening company working in Toronto and amassed a list of wealthy clients. Over the years, many who traveled trusted Bruce to house it for them as well it appears Bruce had no formal training, but did have a green thumb. His clients on Mallory Crescent noticed that when he added five large planter pots to their backyard, he didn't fill the bottom with filler, such as styrofoam, which is common, but rather he preferred to use dirt, which made the pots very heavy and sturdy so they wouldn't tip over. Skanda Navaratam arrived in Toronto from Sri Lanka where he'd fled after being jailed and tortured. Court records indicated 
that he attended the University of Toronto and worked as a professor's aide. Sometime in the 2000s, he met Bruce, and the two socialized, enjoyed trips to Niagara Falls, and became intimate. Bruce took digital photos of Skanda and saved them, even after their relationship ended in 2008. On September 6, 2010, 43-year-old Skanda was seen leaving a bar. That was the last time anyone recalled seeing him. He was reported missing nine days later. Abdul Bazir Fazi was a pressman for a company in Mississauga, a suburb of Toronto. He worked the 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. shift, but on December 29th, he left around 3 p.m. and called his wife to say he was going out with a friend. At 11 p.m., he was spotted at a bathhouse in Toronto's LGBT village. Abdul Bazir didn't come home that night nor the next morning, and his cousin reported him missing. Now, the details of Abdul Bazir's murder aren't exactly known, because dead men don't talk, and neither did Bruce. Bruce wound a rope around Abdul Bazir's neck, then wrapped the rope around a metal pipe, and twisted, and kept twisting until he was dead. Then he snapped photos and saved them on a USB drive, so that with a click of a mouse he could relive it any time he wanted. Bruce dismembered his body, packed up the pieces, and drove to another one of his client's property, less than a mile away, on Mallory Crescent. There he buried Abdul Bazir, threw out the large pots in the backyard, the same pots he'd buried Skanda. Police located his vehicle in January, parked near a home by Mount Pleasant Cemetery, a home that Bruce was house-sitting while the owners were out of town. Majid Kayan moved to Canada from Afghanistan. For a short time in 2003, he worked for Bruce doing landscaping, and the men had a brief relationship. Nine years later, it was October 14th, 2012, and Majid spent the day with his son. A few days later, he saw a friend. That was the last time anyone saw him. The 58-year-old had simply disappeared. Police eventually attended his apartment to find that his birds had been left to die and his bank card hadn't been used in weeks. Somewhere, Majid and Bruce crossed paths and returned to Bruce's home. In his bedroom, Bruce took photos with his cell phone. Majid's eyes were closed. He was wearing a fur hat and a fur coat, and an unlit cigar hung from his mouth. In the background, the photo captured the gray bed frame. Bruce dismembered his body and traveled to Mallory Crescent, where he added his remains to the potted plants. The LGBT community in Toronto knew someone was preying on them, but police weren't acknowledging their fears. 
that is, until November 2012, when they quietly launched Project Houston to investigate the deaths of Skanda, Abdul-Bazir, and Majid. As part of their investigation, they learned that Abdul-Bazir had worked for Bruce and interviewed him. He readily admitted that he'd employed him and that they'd had a relationship, but that he'd ended it. Police considered Bruce a witness to a missing persons case at this point, nothing more. Two weeks later, Bruce got rid of his van and purchased a 2004 Dodge Caravan. A year and a half later, in April 2014, Project Houston wrapped up with no answers as to who murdered the three men. A month later, Bruce's request to the Parole Board of Canada that his 2003 conviction for sexual assault be pardoned was granted. In Canada, after five years, anyone with a criminal record can request the record be wiped clean, and depending on circumstances, it can happen. But meanwhile, the parole board had no idea that he'd murdered three men. Sarush Mahmoudi left Iran in 1991 and went to Turkey. He eventually came to Canada as a refugee and settled in Toronto, where he worked and lived with his wife. On August 15, 2015, the 49-year-old went to bed. Sometime during the night, he awoke, packed a few clothes in a black bag, and snuck out of the house unseen. He didn't show up for work and his wife reported him missing. Sarush met up with Bruce at his home that night. A rope was wrapped around his neck and he was strangled to death. Again, Bruce took photos. One was timestamped 12.09 a.m. Posed in his bedroom, Sarush's eyes were taped open. He was wearing a fur coat with an unlit cigar between his lips. Bruce dismembered his body and drove to Mallory Crescent, where he buried him in two pots. Krishna Kanagrantam came to Canada in 2010 aboard the MV Sunsea, along with almost 500 refugees. After their three-month voyage, the ship was intercepted off the coast of British Columbia by Canadian authorities and escorted to the Navy docks at CFB Esquimalt. Krishna made his way across Canada and settled in Toronto. He occasionally worked as a cleaner in a restaurant, but employment was hard to come by. Throughout the years, he kept in contact with his family and made new friends. In September 2015, he was ordered deported, but did not report to immigration and remained in the country. Four months later, at age 37, he disappeared. His friends never reported him because they thought he was in hiding. Bruce took Krishna to his bedroom and murdered his fifth victim. In a photo date stamped January 9, 2016, 
Krishna was laying on the bed with his gray frame, a dark line visible across his neck with his eyes closed. Afterwards, Bruce shaved the hair off his head, dismembered his body, and wrapped it in plastic bags. He stashed the hair in a bag and put it in a shed on a property near Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Then he drove to Mallory Crescent and buried the plastic bags in one pot. Dean Lusowick lived with his great-aunt in Toronto until she passed away. Then he ended up living in shelters. On April 22, 2016, 43-year-old Dean checked out of the extreme weather program at a shelter. Sometime later that day, he crossed paths with a serial killer. In his bedroom, Bruce photographed Dean from multiple angles. His eyes closed, his naked body wearing a fur coat. A white rope hung around his neck with lines drawn across his throat. A photo was time-stamped 5.59 a.m. His body was dismembered and planted in a pot on Mallory Crescent. Court records reveal that a month later, Bruce picked his next victim. He arranged to meet a man he'd known for years. The man got into Bruce's van and noticed the floor was lined with a plastic sheet, and on top lay a fur coat. Bruce told the man to lie down with one arm behind his back. He complied. Bruce then held onto the man's free wrist with one hand, and with the other began to strangle him. The man fought back, begging and pleading with him, but Bruce would not stop. The man managed to roll away and escaped. He called police and reported the attempted murder. Bruce voluntarily went to the police station. He was arrested and gave a statement that was angled to clear himself. Had an officer ran a criminal record check, it wouldn't have shown his 2003 conviction because he had been pardoned. The officer believed his story and released him. Eleven months later, Salim Essen was tired and broke. He had been living with a friend, but now was on his own, with no roof over his head. His caseworker at the shelter gave him $10 a day, money that he would pick up in person. On April 14, 2017, he reached out to his best friend, who gave him $60. The two texted often and spoke every day, and he found it unusual when two days went by and he hadn't heard from Selim. At Bruce's apartment, he wrapped a white rope around Selim's neck and cinched it tight using a metal bar. He snapped photos of him in his bedroom with his eyes closed and his body staged in a fur coat. Another photo was taken this time with his beard shaved 
and on the floor of the van, a hacksaw was visible. Andrew Kisman lived in an apartment building where he was also the building superintendent. On June 26, 2017, he had plans to connect with a tenant, but when she didn't hear from him by 2 p.m., she called his cell phone. He did not answer. Then she noticed that several of his chores around the building hadn't been completed and his cat hadn't been fed. Police were notified and searched Andrew's home. There, they found a calendar, and in the little square dated the 26th was written a name, Bruce, 2 or 3 p.m. Bruce killed Andrew, took photos of him with a rope around his neck, secured by a bar. He shaved his head, dismembered him, and buried him in a pot on Mallory Crescent. Police see surveillance video from around the neighborhood. That's when they spotted a red Dodge Caravan and stopped at Andrew's building just after 3 p.m. The video did not capture the driver or the license plate. Detectives took a screenshot of the van to the Dodge dealership where its chrome side trim and absence of fog lights narrowed it down to a 2004 model. Detectives then got a list of all Red Dodge caravans with that year in the greater Toronto area. That narrowed it down to just over 6,000 vehicles. Who would have thought there would be that many red vans in one city? Detectives then narrowed it down further to owners with the name Bruce. There were five, but one name stood out an individual that they had interviewed a year earlier when he attempted to strangle a man. Bruce MacArthur was now a person of interest. In August 2017, police launched Project PRISM to investigate the disappearance of Salim and Andrew. In November, they located and seized Bruce's old Dodge Caravan from an auto parts yard. For two months from September to November, police followed Bruce in an attempt to get a DNA sample. They were able to scoop up a discarded plate and fork at a coffee shop. While following him, they noticed that on seven different days, he worked in the gardens at a residence on Mallory Crescent. CTV News reported that police searched the Mallory Crescent property but found no evidence of human remains. Police then got access to the phone records of the owners of the property to establish if they were home when the men disappeared. They were not. In December, police were publicly discounting the LGBTQ community's fears that a serial killer was preying on them. The Star reported that a police spokesman said there is no evidence let me repeat, no evidence linking the disappearances. But behind the scenes, police received a search warrant to covertly enter Bruce's residence. On December 17th, they located thousands of photos. During the time that they had, they were only able to download 45% of them. 
but it was enough for them to identify photos of Andrew going back 10 years, which proved Bruce knew him. They also discovered photos of Andrew after he had been murdered. In the summer of 2018, Bruce met a man online. In court records, he was identified only as John. He'd immigrated to Canada five years earlier and was a married man. His family knew nothing of his other life. Bruce and John hooked up numerous times, often meeting at Bruce's home, where he took photos which he stored on a USB drive. In September, Bruce got another new van. The following January, police had Bruce under surveillance when they observed John entering his apartment. Bruce took him to his bedroom, where they sat on the bed. Bruce left as John removed his clothes, and when he returned, he was holding handcuffs and said they were going to try something different. He handcuffed John's hands to the bed and attempted to tape his mouth shut. Detectives decided they couldn't wait any longer. They had to stop Bruce before John became his next victim. They knocked on the apartment door, and surprisingly, Bruce answered it. Police found John still alive, handcuffed to the bed. Bruce was arrested and charged with the murders of Salim and Andrew. Within two weeks, he was also charged with the murders of Majid, Sarush, and Dean. Police descended again on the yard at Mallory Crescent with cadaver dogs and over nine days discovered the remains of seven men buried in the five large pots. Bruce was charged with murders of Skanda, Abdul-Bazir, and Krishna. It took investigators four months to complete the forensic examination of Bruce's apartment. They seized 1,800 pieces of evidence and more than 18,000 photographs. It was the largest forensic investigation in Toronto's history. Police had to wait for the ground to thaw on Mallory Crescent and in late spring spent four months excavating the backyard, including a ravine behind the property that backed on to a forest. There they found the remains of Majid. The evidence against Bruce was insurmountable they confirmed that Bruce had access to the residence on Mallory Crescent on the dates each of the men were murdered. They found DNA evidence in his old and new vans and his garage that linked him to Selene and Andrew. In his bedroom, they found a ring and necklace belonging to Dean and a bracelet engraved with Skanda. On the fur coat, DNA from Surush and Dean were identified. On January 29, 2019, Bruce pled guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to eight life sentences to be served concurrently with no chance of parole for 25 years. In Canada, each charge carried a mandatory life sentence but a judge cannot sentence someone to more than one life sentence. However, the judge can decide 
how many years are to be served before they are eligible for parole. In Bruce's case, he will be 91, so it is highly unlikely he will ever see the gardens outside of prison. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Jesse Matthew. The women were young and carefree. Life was fun. Until, in the darkness, separated from their friends, he snatched them, taking what he wanted and snuffing out their lies. Their bravery and will to fight brought him to justice. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Fastlane Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.